Want to know what trust and connection have to do with leadership? Then stay tuned because our next special guest is Robin Drake, and he shares his stories about interviewing Russian spies. I mean, you're going to have to listen to catch the whole story because it is pretty fascinating. So stay tuned. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hello, you are listening to The Power of Investing in People with Shay Sparks. I had the honor of being on the show with Shay and wow, how authentic she is and how much I know that she wants to keep hope alive in the community. So thank you all for joining. And everyone here today, I am offering a special to all active duty or retired military to my all access on-demand training where we learn how to dream, believe, and achieve our best life. Please visit at timlanefitness.com and I'll see you all soon. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. I am your host, Shay Sparks, Chief Excitement Officer of Sparks of Fire International, where we get you fired up about your life and your business by transforming trauma into a treasure. Check out my new co-author collaborative book called Hashtag Firestarters, How to Be a Spark of Hope in the Midst of Change on my website at shaysparks.com. And I invite you to connect with me on all the social media links on my website, like Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and even LinkedIn. And today, our guest is the amazing Robin Drake. Welcome to the show, Robin. Thanks, Shay. And uh, boy, I, I love your intro. <laughs> you have so many cool things. I love how you how you infuse sparks and everything. And just the positivity is infectious. So uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for saying that. That, that means a lot. And I want to give a shout out to our dear friend, Lane Knighting, to, that introduced us. So thank you, Lane. Yeah, Lane is an amazing gentleman who, uh, man, I just want to live his life. <laughs> Traveling right? the world on his bike. I mean, that's crazy great. Yes. And I just uh, released his episode yesterday or last week. So it was, I know I saw that. Oh, he's such a dear, dear man. I love his story. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Robin Dreek is the best-selling author, professional speaker, trainer, facilitator, veteran, retired FBI special agent, and chief of the counterintelligent behavioral analysis program. He has taken his life's work of recruiting spies, yes, you heard me, spies, and broken them down to the art of leadership, communication, and relationship building into five steps of trust and six signs of who you can trust. Since 2010, Robin has been working with large corporations as well as small companies in every aspect of their business. Whether it was newly promoted leaders, executive sales teams, or customer relations, Robin has created, crafted his people formula for quick results and maximum success. His website is peopleformula.com. Well, Robin, I am so excited to jump in because you are just have this amazing story that I can't wait to share. And I always like to start off with the first question of what does investing in people mean to you? It means absolutely everything in life. It, it, I, I love that that's what's important to you and your show is because you know, a very big truism, you know, and when you read my background, yes, that is a hardcore type A hard charging background. And in reality, 
it's a power background Mm. and you will fail magnificently if you focus your life around power, popularity, control, because that is about self leadership, which is the power of investing in others is what life is truly about because, Mm. you know, we are here on this planet to have great, healthy, strong relationships because none of us can do any of this alone. And so when you focus on others, you focus on creating great trust, great relationships and partnerships, you can achieve anything. And if you focus on the power and control, you will fail. At some point, you will fail. And it's just a truism of life. You got to get outside yourself, focus on others and make it all about them. Hmm. Wow. I love, love, love that answer. And I just love that you talked about control. So I'm a certified fearless living coach and fear for a lot of people will show up as control. They're trying to control the other person, the situation, what have you. So how have you seen, we'll put it that way, especially in your background um, with all of the uh, amazing things that you've done, how have you seen where control has has really stopped people. Yeah, everywhere. (laughs) You know, as, you know, again, going back to that type A, you know, background of mine where you're trying to control the world around you to fit your your paradigm of what you're trying to make happen. When you're going against people that are exactly like you, or even if they're not like you, shields are up. You know, it it just came down to seeing the cause and effect of my behavior on others. And it's funny, too, because we start out life, all of us, I think, have experienced this, whether you're in middle school or high school. We've seen the popular kids. We've either been popular, you know, we've been somewhere on that, you know, continuum of popularity. And when we're at a younger age, you know, this popularity is rewarded by adults in our surroundings and others that and they're and they're equating this popularity to leadership, Mm. But popularity is about control. It's about control of people's perceptions of you. It's about control of your environment around you. And it's exceptionally Mm self-centered. And so you have this muscle memory built around that great leaders are popular and popular Mm. is is power and control. It's the furthest thing from it is actually the dichotomy of leadership. It's on the opposite side because power and control is about self leadership and being of service to others is about others. It's about creating those relationships, being supportive of others, demonstrating gratitude to others, which if you're having control, you don't. So to me, it's that complete opposite dichotomy. And every time I've tried to exercise control, you know, because that's what they're trying to do. You're trying to control the interview, mm-hmm. control the environment, control everything. You're going to get frustrated. Frustration, you know, clouds the brain with all the negative emotions, you know, anger, resentment, frustration. And then you don't see the solutions that are there through relationships, through people. And so (laughs) I have found, you know, any exercise of control is just ludicrous because you can't. The only thing you can control is your own response to the situations around you. Mm, So true. You know, oftentimes we have an expectation of another person of how we want them to show up or we want them to, you know, respond to the conversation. And the truth is that has nothing to do with us. It's all about trying to control the other person. So I love that, you know, how you have declared that, that leadership is not about control. It's about service and popularity in today's world with social media has taken on this whole nother animal 
where people look at them as leaders and they're really not. You know, it's, it's, it's so amazing. Yeah. And you're right. Social media is compounding the effect because they give people a tool to be even more self-centered mm-hmm. um, and it's being rewarded by likes and retweets and, and, and reshares. See, but there's a way in which you can do it though, and be a leader in it. And that is, you know, things like you do, you're not a me former, you're an informer. Me formers are about the popularity control and power. Informers are about being a resource for other people's paths and success according to what they want on their timing, how, how they want it delivered. You know, so that's where you, know, you can't sit in judgment or control someone else's choices. All you can do is be a resource, and as I call it, an available resource for their success and prosperity without expectation of reciprocity. So you can use these platforms in a positive way, but they're set up for the, the popular power way. You just got to be aware of it and always ask yourself, am I informing or me forming? Hmm. Wow. So I'm just curious, was there a time in your life where you were me forming and you were really like, huh, something's got to shift here. Something's got to give. I got to give up control, so to speak. Great question. <laughs> it's, you know, everything's an evolution. You know, before I, I, I discovered this word power, which is actually pretty recent, uh, I, read a, I read a decent amount and I read a book on uh, the, the 48 Laws of Power. Hmm. Uh, and it was enlightening because it was horrendous to me <laughs> because it was extremely self-centered, extremely controlling. Hmm. Um, but then I, I finally had labels and meanings behind seeing what that great fail, the first major failing in my life was. So here I was, you know, I went, when I was in high school, I was a pretty popular guy enough that I was a football player, you know, I was in all the clubs, elected hmm. to class offices, got into the Naval Academy, you know, my popularity with people got me through there because I was a complete academic moron compared to everyone else around me. And so, and I had equated, I must be a natural born leader. I have all mm. these people like me, you know, because I was popular. Yeah. I then hit the Marine Corps and the first instance of actually having to lead. And I fell flat on my face, ranked last out of all the second lieutenants. And I go to my major and said, all right, sorry, I, I, I own it. I'm doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? And he said to me, you just need to be a better leader. Mm. I didn't understand what that meant because I thought I was. And I said, all right, how do I do that? And he says, well, you just need to make it about everyone else but yourself. Again, you got to let go of popularity and power. You have to make it about others. I had no clue what that was. I said, how? And he goes, just figure it out and do it. So that became my life's pursuit at that point, figuring out how to reverse, you know, this, this biological and genetic and, and, and social norm I had come to understand as what I thought was leadership because no one had defined it for me before. Right. And it, and it was completely opposite of what I had been doing. And so and it's really simple. These four simple things, and I'll, and I'll get back to you. If, yeah. you. if you use this language to shift the focus from yourself to others, you're going to demonstrate value. You're going to demonstrate your affiliation and your appreciation of them. So you seek their thoughts and opinions rather than giving them yours. You talk in terms of their priorities rather than your own. You validate them without judging them, have that non-judgmental curiosity about them. Mm -hmm. And finally, you empower them with choices. Because if you do include one of those four things in everything you say and write and interact, the entire focus shifts from you to them their, their brain rewards them for the engagement with you, both the, you know, the short-term you know, endorphins and dopamine, but even more importantly, long-term serotonin and oxytocin, the pleasure centers that say, this is a relationship and a partnership and a great human being I want to continue to interact with. And that's how you make that shift. Mm. 
Fascinating. I, and I say that because I just spoke like an hour ago before this, this recording on leadership values. And that's literally what I talked about is how we have to step in to, you know, working on ourselves and being willing to practice some of those leadership values that don't maybe not align with us. And so how do we practice leadership? So basically, I, I what I'm hearing you say is that you took on the role of how do I practice being a leader? Yes, absolutely. That's because when you say values, I am very clear. And so I have three leadership pillars and my values. So my leadership pillars are leaders accomplished missions, goals, and priorities. Second, in order to do that, they have to create a safe work environment emotionally and physically for people to do that safe and trusted so that they can be them best selves. And finally, leaders also make themselves an available resource for the success and prosperity of their people without expectation or reciprocity. They let lift people up. So those are my three pillars. And then my values of leadership are really simple. Leaders create healthy, strong professional relationships. Number one, ask yourself, is what I'm about to do or say going to do that? Number two, leaders are open, honest, and transparent because you cannot have a good, healthy relationship without open, honest, transparent communications. And then again, three, the third value is that available resource for the success and prosperity of others without expectation or reciprocity. And that key is there no expectation or reciprocity. So it doesn't, yeah. it's not, it's not a power move. It's actually a supportive move. Yes. Yes. You know, I think that we get oftentimes get attached to the outcome, which is that expectation so much that we don't even think about just standing in who we are and the truth of connecting with another person. And it's like, okay, what can I get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and leaders have to understand there is an outcome because you're obviously moving in a direction. But the most important thing is to focus on the process that gets you there. And the, and the process that's going to get you there, you know, these tiny habits of a day are the relationships that you forge along the way. Because if you forge and create great, healthy, strong relationships, you know, with the individuals that are on the path towards that outcome, the outcome will happen when the outcome happens. But you put in these great practices every day and you great, you create that great personal brand, you create that great company brand, and you create an environment where people want to work, where they want to come back and they want to you know, you're just become this magnet. And here's the other great thing. When you understand how to have great, healthy, strong relationships, it becomes a force multiplier because then people around you start having those same behaviors and they start having stronger relationships. So even if you have a task or something you're trying to accomplish, you know, and it's, you don't have a degree of, you know, it's the, your immediate surroundings, you know, individuals don't have that answer. Well, since they have great relationships with others now, it might only take one or two degrees of separation, you know, to find the answer and solution that you're trying to um, get. Mm, I love that. You know, it's it's fascinating that so many people go, you know, I hear what you guys are saying about leadership and the natural born leader. And I just don't think I have it in me to be a leader. Is there advice that you would give them to nurture the leader in them? Or would you, is there something else that you would recommend? Maybe they don't even think about themselves as a leader. You know, I think it's another good question. Everyone's a leader because mm -hmm. leader, again, leadership to me is nothing more than an awareness that you're trying to get something done. Cause now that, that that's the first step in, you know, the pillar of leadership is you have, you understand the goal and priority. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, is as a leader, you understand you can't do it alone. You're going to yeah. require 
relationships in order to do that. And so now it's up to you to how can you inspire someone to want to be a resource? And likewise, in order to inspire someone to want to be a resource for you, you also have to make yourself available resource for them. Right. You know, with their goals and priorities. In other words, discover their goals, priorities, and objectives. Figure out what you're going to do to make their lives easier. And in the course of doing this interaction, you're going to be sharing with them your priorities. And along the way, the likelihood of them reciprocating you know, and being a resource for you is pretty high. And that's how relationships form. But again, the act of you just being thoughtful makes you a leader. <laughs> I agree. I totally agree. And I, I love what you said, that everyone is a leader because I feel the same way. I was just asked this question about nurturing. And I said, you know, you really have to think about how the choices that you make, like even to show up every single day at your job or your career or as a parent, you're showing you're choosing to show up as a leader and not even realizing it. So if you can't see that within yourselves, I suggested reaching out to a mentor or finding a mentor and, you know, having them help you know, cultivate that leadership that's really inside you. You just don't see it. Yeah. And a lot of times people think leadership is about title and position. No, leadership has nothing to do with about title and position. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually just about, like you said, showing up, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that leaders face is that they think it's about the things they do. And a lot of times just being present is huge, yes. huge, you know, and taking time to be present. You know, people think they don't have time to, to just show up. Well, then you're not going to get anything accomplished because presence goes so far when building those relationships, having, remembering that you have one mouth and two ears for a reason, you know, listen at least <laughs> twice as much as you talk. Mm, I love that. that. Way, you know, and that way you can actually hear the challenges of people around you. And when you hear their challenges, you're going to start bringing forward solutions, you know, again, without that expectation of reciprocity as you're moving towards and objectives and helping them move towards theirs. It's, it's leadership has never been about title and position. Mm, I love that. For me as a coach, what I really do is, is help people focus on their own process and bring light to the process yeah. and versus the outcome. Like the out, like you, I love that you said the outcome is going to happen. Like mm-hmm. just, I, I feel like as a society, we get attached to the, cause we're con- trying to control, right? The time frame of when that outcome is supposed to happen. And again, supposed to is the control, but I, it's just fascinating to me when I talk to so many people who are like, yeah, but I want it now. And it's like, I get that. <laughs> and it's not about now. It's about uncovering your process and how you think and how you feel and how you move through this so that you can achieve the outcome. And, and, and you're hitting, you know, I, I don't know, you probably read it from what you're saying, you know, James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, you know, it's ringing true because it's, it's doing the little things every single day and, yes. and removing the friction from healthy habits and creating friction for unhealthy ones and putting in the work. You know, and that comes from Ryan Holiday's books on stoicism. You know, it's showing up and, and, you know, there is no magical outcome. Probably the, the, the question I get off most often asked, you know, by, especially by younger folks, you know, that, you know, they see that ultimate title I had in the FBI of chief of the behavioral analysis program that everyone thinks, you know, just these things just magically happen. Mm-hmm. No, it happened through some magnificent failures in my life. You know, it took me an extra year to get in the Naval Academy. I almost got thrown out of the Naval Academy for academically four times. Wow. I, I started out aerospace engineering, failed out of that, went political science. I wanted to go naval aviation. My eyes went bad. I, had, I went Marine Corps instead. I mean, everything went completely sideways from the plan. And you had mentioned it, mentors, teachers, and guides. 
the times when things went well and were according to the plan I was attempting is because I had someone that inserted themselves in my life as a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, and the times when things went sideways, it was because I was devoid of mentors. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. You know, when you grow up, you know, you compound, you know, this popularity power type thing ends, you know, you come from a challenged background, you know, financially from us, you know, I had, my family was so dirt poor. I was, I was working and self-reliant at a very young age. And so this becomes, you know, to double compounding things where you're all about popularity and power and and self-reliance so you don't understand wow you can actually have someone help you you mm-hmm. can actually get a teacher mentor and guide that can be part of your team and part of that is not just having a teacher mentor and guide i think the other half of the equation is always making yourself available as one as well because you know that's why you know again my one of my mottos of my company is continually learn and continually educate that way, you know, you're always in student mode and you're always in teacher mode. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, that's where the greatest things happen in life, I think. And so, uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in a mentor thing. <laughs> you know, it's funny. A couple of years ago, somebody asked me that, well, do you have a mentor? And I said, honestly, yes and no. I don't have a physical mentor at the time that was like right in front of me, but I had all those books that you mentioned and all the authors and all of the, exactly. All of the people My that you- ones. Right. All the people on YouTube that you can watch with all those names on those books, right? That they all have content out there for you to research and absorb and soak in. Those were my mentors. And then I said, well, if I want a ment, if I want to have a mentor, maybe like he's talk about the law of reciprocity, maybe I need to be a mentor first. And as soon as I started to become a mentor, the mentor started to show up. So it's like, as soon as the the student is ready, the teacher will appear. (laughs) Yeah. I've had them in my life and didn't even realize it. I called them friends. Yeah. And a matter of fact, I just interviewed one of them, Jack Schaefer on came out with the book on the truth detector. He was on my behavioral team with me. Joe Navarro was also on my behavioral team with me. He wrote the book, what everybody is saying. And these are two great mentors in my lives that they were about 15 years, my senior in the FBI. And they are the Jedi masters of all things behavioral I had learned. And I, I just talked to Jack uh, a couple days ago on my show. And again, I didn't even realize it at the time, you know, what he was. I was just a friend, no teacher, mentor, and guide and a fantastic one. And they make such a huge difference. And part of that mentor too, is having someone, you know, a type of mentor that is a, you know, you call them a leveling critic, you know, they, they, they understand your goals and objectives. Mm-hmm. They're, they're objective for you and they love you unconditionally. And so they're vested in your success, you know? So having someone like that is critical. Mine's my wife. Every time I give, every time I, I'm about to post something, you know, on a blog or something like that, I have to give it to her. And, and the worst thing in the world is I don't wait to see what she says. I look at her nonverbals and she'll read it and I'll get a, I'll get like a really bad, you know, she'll like cringe at it. <laughs> like, and she says, you can't look at me when I'm doing a first read of this. I said, yeah, but you're killing me because <laughs> I know you care and you're going to do a great job of helping me make this better. But you know, that her, her and her mentor spotlight just makes it really horrible to deal with sometimes, but that's what mentors are there for loving critics. <laughs> mm, I love that description of it. That's so true. And you mentioned, um, nonverbal cues. So take us back to, you know, I'm assuming nonverbal cues, body language, whatever you want to call it, is part of your training. So how did you get interested in that? And how did you get to be recruiting spies? 
I'll do the spies first because that was the sequence. So I, when I came in the FBI, I literally had no idea what I wanted to do. We had my last duty station I served at in the Marine Corps at Paris Island, South Carolina. I was a series and company commander down there. And then I went to depot operations. I was actually one of the drafters of uh, what Marines know as the Crucible at Paris Island that came around in 1996. That's a final culminating event at Paris Island. So we had an FBI recruiter came down to Paris Island. I was, I was a captain. And I was looking to get out of the Marine Corps. And he said, I think F- Marine Corps officers make great FBI agents. And I said, okay, does this does all my military time count towards retirement? And <laughs> and and I said, do I said, what's the retirement rate? In other words, how how long do people stay on if it shows they like the job? And he goes, ninety five to ninety eight percent of the agents that come on board stay to retirement. I said, all right, they must like the job. I'll apply, and I got in. No idea what we were going to do or anything. I get to New- I get assigned to New York City, and I was at my first firearms training up there because we qualify four times a year. And on the firing range with me, I had a, I was wearing my Marine Corps baseball hat and I had a, two senior guys on either side of me. And they said, oh, you're a former Marine. I go, yes. And I said, so am I. I was at Quezon during a Tet Offensive. And I was like, holy cow, wow. that's crazy. And he goes, what squad are you going to go to? I said, I don't know yet. And he goes, well, why don't you try to come to ours? Our job is to recruit Russian spies. And we're all former military in a squad. And so I said, that sounds cool. I, I, I petitioned. There was a vacancy right when I petitioned to get on the squad because we do this rotation for new agents. And I was lucky enough to get on the squad. And there, that's what started. You know, I was on a, the, these Jedi masters were amazing. And see, mm. here's what it's about. And this is what, you know, people don't understand. Recruiting spies is the highest level of building trusted relationships yes. can have because it's, it's no power. It's no controls, no manipulation because literally, you know, they are putting their lives and their family lives in your hands. If you don't have trust and a healthy, strong relationship, that it isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I got on, I got better at, at doing this. I started understanding it's just about being real, being genuine, yeah. being transparent and creating a great relationship and just finding the people that actually the biggest challenge was which ones have a priority in their lives that they want their families not to grow up here, but grow up here, you know, over there, but here, you know, so that's right. really it. And so when I got on the team, it was probably about four or five years after I came in the FBI, it takes a while to get on the team. And again, I filled out the application, got interviewed, got to the first training. It was uh, January, 2002 is when I got on the team as a, just a team member. And at my first team training was Joe Navarro, a world renowned nonverbal expert. And he did our first training on nonverbal behavior. I was enamored with it. I was enamored with him and I was often running on focusing on nonverbal behavior as my first expertise. And then because my job in the bureau was more of the recruiting spies and not interview and interrogation for espionage investigations, I, I tended to then focus more on the whole picture for the whole interaction, not just the nonverbals, but mm-hmm. the nonverbals are, are part of the whole for me. Mm-hmm. Joe did a lot more espionage interviews and terrorism interviews, so he focused more on that aspect of it. Jack did a lot of elicitation, so that was his thing for eliciting truth from uh, – so – it's all a small part of the whole. So nonverbals are very important for me, but I'm actually just watching from the chest up now because I got to be able to really listen to your words that you're saying to build those connections. Mm, that just sounds amazing. <laughs> 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 Only because I have found, you know, we're in the, the hopefully quote unquote, the end of the pandemic of where we had to wear masks for, you know, over a year and a half. And I found where I was reading lips 
so much that I stopped. Like, I'm like, wait, what is, what are you saying? I can't, I can't visually see you. So I can't really hear what you're saying, but I have found that, you know, with just the mask and you're only looking from the nose, the bridge of the nose up, the nonverbal cues of the raising the eyebrows has just been so important. I didn't even realize how, how important it was. Yeah, you can still, you know, so the other good thing, even with mask wearing, you know, it, you see a lot of the eyes still because the eyes are where your folks normally anyway. So you still see a lot of the eyes and nonverbals are actually your vocals as well. So you can actually see if someone deviates from their normal baseline nonverbally, you know, through their vocals as well, their modulation, their tenor, their intonation, their tempo. All these things also are very indicative. I mean, you, it's easy to tell if someone's having a good day or a bad day, even if you're just listening to their voice and how they're communicating. You lose some with a mask, but you know, your other senses, you know, start heightening as well. Mm-hmm. Now I agree. I, so by trade, I'm also a hairstylist. And so I sit in the chair and read verbal cues all right. day yeah. long, nonverbal cues all day long. Yes. A Jedi master. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to have to get that <laughs> a t-shirt or something. Yes. I love that you mentioned the word trust. And I know that you have a book about trust. So tell us a little bit about the writing process of that for you. And what was the motivation behind writing it? Like, did you go, you know, there's just not enough information about trust out there. It was by mistake, <laughs> like most things in life are. <laughs> so back in 2013, I had been running the team for a couple of years, our behavioral team, and sequestration hit the government. And which meant that the budget got slashed and my team got disbanded from the one part of the bureau where we existed. It was going to be adopted into another, but they weren't taking the personnel. So I, I stepped down. I went back to the street to work cases again my last couple of years. So I went, you know, I was doing it from the 30,000 foot level, you know, a couple hundred cases a year. Then I went back to the street for my last couple of years, five miles from home. It was fantastic. It, best choice ever made in my life. But at that same time, I'd already, I'd already come out with my first book, you know, my first self-published book on rapport. And I'd done uh, numerous articles for law enforcement bulletin on recruiting, interviewing, that kind of stuff. So anyway, law enforcement bulletin comes to me again and asked me to do an article on counterintelligence because they didn't have any. I said, Oh, let me write. I said, what can I do on counterintelligence? I said, Oh, let me write about what my team does. I love I love strategizing human engagements because that's what we did. You know, case agent would call me, said, hey, Robin, we're having a challenge with this case, this operation. You know, can we get a, a consult? And I said, absolutely. And so we'd go in and we'd help this case agent strategize a human engagement. We'd mm. help them strategize with management because they had to get authority to do things that they want to do. And then it came down to a double agent operation, false flag, recruitment operation, all these hooky spooky spy things we helped strategize. Uh-huh. And so when I took that 30, when I took that step back to try to make the, the art form, as I call it, make that art form linear, uh, paint by number so it can be repeated and you can write it down for people. Mm-hmm. I never thought about what we did before. I mean, I knew what we did. I assembled a team of about four people with one operational psych. We listen to the case agent talk about the human beings they're going to interact with. We take that information and we strategize as a team how to do a better interaction. Mm-hmm. But here's what I realized. Um, this is where the aha moment happened was in every single one of these hundreds of cases I was strategizing a year and in my own cases throughout my entire career and then in everything in life, you know, if you, if you have an encounter that you want to go better than it otherwise might, all I was doing was strategizing trust mm. because no one is going to take any action. No one's going to cooperate. No one's going to share information. No one's going to partner with you. No one's going to do anything without trust. And so what I realized was that was the underlying thing in every single behavioral consult that I was doing. We were strategizing a trusting relationship. 
yeah. free of manipulation, free, free of subterfuge. I mean, we have all these tools and techniques you can use if you, if you fail basically at developing a relationship, but we strategize good, healthy relationships above all else. And so I came up with these five steps of trust and that I wrote an article. So I wrote the article about it. Um, I got picked up by a bunch of different people that reposted as a blog. And then I was contacted by a, a literary agent in New York that said, Hey, would you want to make this a book? I said, um, sure. <laughs> so, uh, so that was kind of how it got off and running for the Dakota trust to come about as a book. Nice. And what are the four values of trust? It's five. So five. I have the five. So I, there's all these different things we have in a book, but I really boil it down to this. So here's the five steps I utilize to strategize a great, healthy engagement. First of all, step one, on is what are your goals? Means goals and ends goals, because this is where I define the difference between the means goals and ends goals, like the means to the ends in life. Mm-hmm. We always used to think that we have to focus on the milestones first to get to the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. But I focus on the ultimate goal first, and then all else falls into place. And here's what I mean by that. So my example of my life. So I want to go to the Naval Academy, want to become an aerospace engineer, want to become a Navy pilot, test pilot, astronaut. Great inspirational yeah. leader. That was, that was what I wanted, right? All those things along the way were the means goals to the end of becoming an inspirational leader. Mm. All those means goals didn't materialize that way because I didn't have the healthy relationships and mentors to make that happen. Mm. So I focus now on the ends goals first. So the ends goals, number one, and I've mentioned these already in the values of my company is healthy, strong relationships. Number one, mm-hmm. number two, open house communication, transparency, because you can't have strong relationships without that. Third is I make myself an available resource for your success and prosperity, no expectation for reciprocity. Those are the three anchored ends goals in the FBI. You can add another one on there. They're mission statements of companies, you know, protect national security. That's an ends goal. Yeah. Become an inspirational leader. Ends goal. Now, all the means goals that'll, that you need to have happen along the way, if you focus on the ends goals first, like I just stated, those will fall into place because those require relationships. Mm-hmm. And so that's step one, under, understand what your means goals and ends goals are. And I'm understanding now, why would someone want to be a resource for you? Why would someone want to partner with you, you know, from their perspective? So that's step one. Step two, with that individual that you've identified that you want need a relationship with of trust, identify what their priorities are, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations, personal, professional, long-term, short-term, you know, because in or, if you're not talking in terms of their priorities and making yourself a resource for those, no trust. Mm-hmm. Third, identify their context, how they see the world in optic through their particular point of view. This is where you're going to have that non-judgmental curiosity to understand the human being you're interacting with. Dive deep. And because also in context, you're, on, you're going to get commonalities, things of overlap. I've worked with 22, 24 different nationalities throughout the course of my career, never had a problem making a connection. Yes. My connections are, yeah, my connections are generally on kids. We either were kids, no kids, have kids. I can't stop talking about my kids. I always suffer. I say suffered proud parent syndrome. You know, so that's a commonality. Favorite family traditions or holidays you had growing up. They don't have to be the same, but the fact that we had them, mm-hmm. that's something to share. So understand their context. Fourth is language. This is where you're going to ensure that you're using language that's all about them. Mm-hmm. And that's those four things. You're going to seek their thoughts and opinions, talk in terms of their priorities, validate them, and give them choices. Then the fifth one is crafting the encounter, putting all this information together to make sure that you're making yourself there for them. And you always start out with a specific non-judgmental validation of a strength, attribute, or action. So in other words, you have to discover their greatness. Everyone's got it. 
and use and validate that specifically at the start of the conversation. If you don't happen to know what that is, that's okay too, because you can validate their time because no one ever has to give it to you. Mm. That's my five steps. And when you do that, it's, 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 it's real. It's empathetic. It's, it's empathy taken action on, which is uh, compassion and you're going to have trust. Mm, I love that. And I love how you, you break it down into actionable, fearless, actionable steps to take to build that trust with another person. So I'm just wondering, can you apply those to yourself? So what if you don't trust yourself? Ooh, what wouldn't you trust yourself with? I guess if you didn't trust yourself or you have self-doubt or insecurities, which everyone does, it's another guarantee human behavior. We're all insecure about something. Mm-hmm. That's why I go back to the things we were mentioning before, habits. Create good, healthy habits, you know, one little one at a time and let them start compounding. And so ways to do that for myself, I walk a lot and I read a lot. I take notes a lot. I share what I do a lot. That's, that's so it's compounding effects, you know, so it's just showing up every day for yourself and, and just doing work, you know, understanding and finding your own purpose and doing that every single day, not focused on the outcome, but focused on the method. You know, it's, you know, you got to let go of the outcome. You have no control about that. The only thing you control is your little habits you start doing every day. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I, I have worked with clients where they don't trust themselves because they're too afraid to make a decision. So I'm always curious of what people say when I ask that question. Then you have teacher mentors and guides that are part of that process too. You know, I I trust myself a lot until the outcome specifically affects me. In other words, I can be, I'm a great teacher, coach, mentor, and guide for others too, because I maintain a a perfect objectivity because I understand what you're trying to accomplish and I'm not tied to your results. You are. Mm -hmm. But when I'm tied to to my results, I'm going to get my own different emotional biases involved with my decision-making, my my language that might come out, you know, when I'm communicating. That's why it goes through the wife, who's my my loving critic before it goes out. It has to, because as good as I am at doing all this strategizing and I'm good at it for myself too, but am I perfect? Hell no. (laughs) You need, you need a good, what I call beta tester in life. Someone who's going to be there to be your beta tester. Mm, That's very true. You're right. We do need to all need a beta tester. (laughs) So you are doing just all these amazing things of speaking your books, podcasts, interviews, you're a veteran and you are doing courses as well. Excuse me. So what's next for Robin? I partnered with a, with a couple of groups, a couple of guys that have their own companies that are bigger than mine. So my content supporting theirs. I'm in the middle of doing a lot of work, you know, getting a couple of those courses out, supporting what they're doing. And, you know, I don't know. It's one of those things I kind of, I'm extremely open to see what crossed the path. I really... You know, Robin of years ago would have a goal way out in front that I was trying to work towards, but you can't control that. And sometimes it go right. Sometimes I remember when I when I wanted to, after I self published my first book, I wanted to try to write another book. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and this is before the Code of Trust came around, but it was it was similar content. And I was I was sent out letters and letters and letters all the to all the publishers. You know, turned down, turned down. You know, typical thing you're turned down all the time. And finally, when I let go and said, you know what. Mm-hmm. It's just not meant to happen. Literally two weeks later is when I got a call from someone wanting the content, but they wanted it in a better way because I didn't have the answers. They had better answers. And then so 
I, I'm very open to seeing what crosses the path and every day just showing up and doing what my purpose is. My purpose is continually learn and then educate in all areas of building rapport, trust, relationships, and partnerships. Mm, I love that. And, you know, you're spot on when we let go of the control. That's when the the beauty unfolds, right? That's when that's when what we've been trying to work on ha- just falls into place because it's you're in alignment then when you're so focused on the doing or the getting or the receiving of what we ever think we're going to get. We are missing. We're missing the mark. So the letting go is so crucial. It is because letting go allows your brain to clear. So there's no emotional hijacking going on. So you can mm-hmm. actually see the opportunities that present themselves when they come along, which is really important. And the other thing I think it'll help too, you know, it's very easy to become jealous. I find mm, you know, yes. of people, of people in your same space that seem to be doing better than you or seem to be, you know, more powerful or popular or whatever you're going to do or prosperous, whatever you want to define it as. The first thing I think to really ask yourself is when you see that or you have that emotion pop up, do this. Instead of being jealous, celebrate it, celebrate their success and figure out what are they doing because they're doing something. They're doing a lot of work. This stuff, they success doesn't magically happen. <laughs> Some, someone put in a lot of work and in, a, in an area and they became an expert. And that's what's, that's where the success came from. Figure out what they're doing, figure out what they're doing every day, figure out what their habits are. And then you can self-assess and say, all right, is that what I want to do? Is that what I not want to do? So, and then it can, kind of just lets everything kind of float away, not bother you anymore. And that way you can actually then be a leader again, celebrating the success of others, being a resource for them. And there you go. Nice and easy. So yeah, I have no idea what's next. (laughs) Long answer for that. Yeah, no, I love it. So, you know, you're talking about comparing and jealousy. Yeah, all it comes coming to me is I believe it was Michael Jordan maybe said something about 10,000 hours. You got to put in 10,000 hours. So, you know, just get to clocking those hours, you know, perfecting, not even perfecting, progressing your, your craft, what you're working on. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, it'll never be perfect. And that's unattainable goal. So to just keep working on it one hour after the next, and you will get that 10,000 and you'll be considered the expert. It's why when I first started really getting into reading again last year because of the pandemic and doing all this walking, I started saying, well, I might as well listen to books while I do. I mean, it just, yep. and I, I literally had this eye opening awareness that I am a complete moron. <laughs> I, I have, I, I don't have enough years left on this planet to go through all the knowledge I need to go through that I should have been going through for years already. Because I'm, I'm like you, th- these books behind me are my teachers, mentors, and guides, and it's been phenomenal. And I, I, I encourage anyone to read and just, and, and not just read and use it as a trophy. I mean, it's for cover to cover, page by page. Take notes. I take, you know, my processes. When I go walk, I, I take my notes on my cell phone as I'm listening. Literally, I feel like I'm sitting in, in a master's class because most of the authors are the ones that read their books. Yeah. Um, and so you're literally sitting there. And as an extrovert, it's fantastic because I'm forced to listen. I can't respond. <laughs> right. And I'm getting a master class as I'm taking my notes on everything they say that is relevant, you know, to me in my life, then taking those and passing it along. So it's a, it's education. Everyone should do it. I totally agree with you. And, you know, we go back to that. You said the uh, comparison or the jealousy that shows up and the popularity contest. So uh, to me, that is really fear. Fear is showing up. Yeah. So where has fear stopped you? 
good question too. <laughs> I don't know if, if fear has stopped me from initiating anything. I've had it hinder me from continuing a few times. I can remember a few times at the Naval Academy where I feared I was going to be cut from a team. So I quit at first, you know, fear, fear of failing out of that place every single day was another one made me make choices that I on my own, rather I should have had a teacher mentor and guide really helped me guide on the way. I mean, who, who lets a guy that had to take the SAT seven times, you know, to even get an application in Naval Academy, who lets him major in aerospace engineering? Yeah, <laughs> just dumb. I don't think it really ever stopped me, but again, I think it might've, it might've hindered my choices along the way a few times. Yeah. It might've steered you in a different direction. Yeah. It's funny too. When you experience something the first time and you can reflect, I think it's a greatest strength that a human being can have is, is doing after action after every major event and ask yourself, what would I do differently next time? Having learned what I learned. I saw that a lot during nine 11 in New York. I was in New York yeah. city during nine 11. You know, mm. I was, our, our building's five blocks away and I, I counted eight people jump from the towers mm. before the second plane hit. I was watching it live and I watched people, um, run home from fear. I watched people run away. I had experienced things like this before, so I didn't. But in hindsight, I still would have done a few things differently. And not it wasn't out of fear, it was just out of lack of experience. So yeah, I'm a little too fearless maybe. <laughs> Plunging in too fast sometimes. Well, I'm sorry that you had to experience that and yet I'm so glad you were there because I know your presence was definitely needed in the area that you were in. So thank you for your service for being there. And I am just reminded of, you know, sometimes we think of fear showing up and then we're like good in the victim mode of, oh, why me? Why is this happening to me? And what I see you doing and, you know, a lot of leaders doing are really taking it and going, okay, what lesson can I learn here? What do I need to learn in order to move forward? And own it. Kind of alluded to it earlier too with the when coaching. I when I first started doing my coaching, uh, I, I thought probably most of the time is you're going to tell me what your challenges are. We're going to work through that challenge using the code of trust. And I basically run it like a behavioral analysis program consult. Uh-huh. Uh, I've done hundreds of them, and ninety five percent of the time, I'm walking someone through how to stop feeling like a victim <laughs> first. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Egos and vanity get in the way a lot of time from progress. But yeah, I. I had so many, you know, genetically and biologically from my personality type and this popularity thing and, and all that. I had so many things going against me from becoming a good leader earlier on. But the only thing I had that I was doing right is I never felt I was a victim. I mm. always owned it. You know, anytime something yes. went sideways, I never felt like, oh, that was unjust. That's wrong. Yeah. I mean, things were stupid, maybe for my context, but I owned it. What did I do to cause it? And that really helped me have progress through. So I, that's probably the best thing people can do is, all right, you can't control what anyone else is doing. They're not doing it to you. They're just acting on their own securities. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? And I didn't feel, you know, like even during 9-11 in New York and everything, it's just, all right, what are you going to do? You know, I, I, and, I, and I saw beautiful greatness. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. saw, I saw people that were so so magnanimous. It was unbelievable. Like going just going down to the, the site every day, you mm-hmm. went through – a lot of checkpoints. We had to have our windows down and our vehicles go through checkpoints because you had volunteers flooding your car with homemade sandwiches, letters and notes from kids in New Jersey, bottles of water, respirators. I mean, we didn't have boots because like we went out to Fresh Kills Landfill a lot to what we called raking for fingers and toes, trying to find anything to give mm. back to the families. 
and I was out there in sneakers and sludge up to my knees. And I remember telling one of my neighbors, I was on a six to midnight shift. I was, you know, for four months, seven days a week, I didn't see family or friends, but I remember I, I sent an email to someone saying what we were going through. They were asking that next day when I woke up to go down to the site in the morning, there was two pair of steel toe boots on my doorstep that mm. someone had left I just, and the, the, wow. the compassion people had, and then it just racked you because, you know, you had, they had a group of folks on the West side highway around Christopher street. I called them the West side guys because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're there holding candles, holding up signs, cheering as went by and, and little kids holding up a signs, please find my daddy. Hmm. Oh, that's what I saw during nine 11. I saw people coming together hugely. It was that's what I took photos of. That's what I remember the most was the, the impact of relationships and that relationships will get you through it too. Oof. What got us through and what got you through the pandemic this past year? Relationships. Yeah. You, you, wow. Thank you for sharing that touching story. You definitely brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. And I, cause I remember every detail I watched for that whole, you know, time frame. I didn't stop watching it for a lot for weeks, just the humanity. Oh, Yes. In the country, the whole country was just so unbelievably compassionate. compassionate. Yes. Yep. And kind and loving as if we've whew, compared to today's, you had this you unified team Yep. that everyone was just. <laughs> you really yeah. choked me up. Yeah, you really got connected to another yeah. human being, no and, matter what. You know, and the world goes through these things every five to 10 years to remind us and give us context for the beauty that we do have. You know, we just went through it this last year. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it, and people said we've never been through anything like this. I said, think back to 9 11. We have been through this. You know, it, it, th- these types of things continually happen. They always will. And they're, they're tragic. They're sad, the loss of life and, and, and a lot of things. But because of that, you appreciate so much more. I mean, look what we appreciate today. We appreciate meeting in person, being able to touch someone again, being able to maybe give a hug. You know, mm-hmm. I thought handshakes were gone. <laughs> right. You know, all, all right. these things, you know, you know, you just appreciate so much more because, you know, as the, as Ryan holiday says in one of his books, the obstacles, the way, mm. you know, there is no right or wrong. There just is, you know, it's yes. our, it's our ability to change our context and, and grow from it, pass that knowledge onto others. And most importantly, be there for others that are struggling with it. I completely agree. And wow, Robin, this has just been such a remarkable conversation as I knew it would be <laughs> sideways on that one at the end. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it wasn't sideways at all. It just, you know, this is the great thing about this platform is it it go the conversation goes where it's supposed to. Yep. And so we just have a few questions left. So tell people where can they connect with you? Where is your website, social media, all of those things? Yeah. So please do, by the way, I have I I have everything in the world you could possibly need on my website, you know, peopleformula.com, all one word. And what I mean by that is I of course I sell things, I sell my online training courses and my speaking. But if you just want content where I I put out my daily book studies, I, I share the information and knowledge I'm garnering from these books. 
on there and I put it out on Instagram, on my Instagram account, my Twitter account, my LinkedIn page, and it all does funnel into the website as well. And I got a YouTube channel um, that I do my, my very modified podcast or if I get an author willing to share uh, their information with me and have a chat, I'll put that on my channel as well. So all things are there. And I also have a newsletter that goes out uh, once a month where I kind of summarize what we did this past month. So again, you get nice content. Thank you, Shay, for signing up for it. So another couple yeah. of days, you'll be getting that. <laughs> yes. and, and also, most importantly, that's, that's the easy way to contact me. I respond to everyone. And if I can ever be a resource and support you in any way, reach out. I love that. Thank you. And um, peopleformula.com, that'll also be in our show notes as well. And so I'm just curious because you've done so many amazing things. And I know that you're, you're such an uh, incredible leader. So what do you want to be remembered for? What would be your legacy? Being a great dad, father, and husband. Mm. Perfect. Perfect answer. Perfect answer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, because, yeah, of all the people you lies you've touched, it's really about home. Yeah. I I mean, it'd be nice that, you know, people were, you know, at least one person is better off, you know, for information and knowledge you you were able to impart on them that it was impact them in a positive way. You just want to be remembered as a, I did all I could with what I had to serve others. Mm. Beautiful. And you are serving others. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here. And I always like to leave with this question of what phrase, scripture, or mantra are you living by right now? It's not how you make people feel about yourself. It's how you make them feel about themselves. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you, Robin. It's been an absolute joy having you. Thank you, Shay. You too. And thank you for listening to The Power of Investing in People with Shay Sparks. If you enjoyed this episode, because I, Robin, gave some amazing notes. You may even took some notes because he's just amazing. He's mind-blowing. And we invite you to go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Until next time, let's get fired up. Hey, don't turn this off just yet. Does the thought of collaborating and connecting with a diverse group of creative thought leaders appeal to you? Do you have a compelling story and don't know where to start? Have you ever thought about writing a book and thought about writing the whole book is overwhelming? Well, we are looking for you. We want to connect and collaborate with other podcasters, coaches, and entrepreneurs who want to gain exposure. We are looking for other people who want to co-author a book with us. You can find out more details at firestartersbookproject.com.